Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, our guest will be introduced by Future of Work Pioneer Ambassador Michelle Smith. Michelle joins us as a program manager with Amazon and shares our community's passion for leveraging emerging technologies to build communities for the future. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Harpreet. It's my pleasure to introduce my former colleague and current mentor, Chike Agu, to the Future of Work Pioneers community. Chike has a passion for creating a future of work for all, and it's rooted in a deep expertise and connection with local communities that I've been lucky enough to witness. Currently, he is the head of Economic Mobility Pathways at the Education Design Lab, a national nonprofit dedicating to designing, implementing, and scaling new models for higher education, an area that many of us can agree is ripe for innovation. There, he leads the Community College Growth Engine Fund that bridges community college degrees into high growth fields. And you'll hear more about that from him soon. And his work doesn't stop with his day job. He truly engages in the future of work sector across all facets of his life. For example, he is also a technology and human rights fellow at the Harvard Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. There, he is working on a book for the future of work and racial equity that I'm very excited to read once it's completed. And in addition to all of this, Chike also engages in many other future of work efforts across policy, private sector, and education initiatives that does not go without notice. He has been featured at or in the White House, Harvard, Forbes, Wired Magazine, the Council on Foreign Relations, and Fast Company. Chike, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast today, and we're really looking forward to listeners hearing your concepts and efforts on the future of work. And now I'll turn it back to Harpreet to continue the conversation. Thanks again. Thank you, Michelle. Chike, welcome. Uh, thank you so much. And even before we go on, Harpreet, thank you so much for having me and creating this platform. And I really uh, want to thank my old colleague, Michelle Smith, for, for that very generous, overly generous introduction. Um, uh, you know, Harpreet, I really want to thank you for creating this, this platform and this forum to discuss this issue. I've always said, and I believe before there was even a future of work name, that this was kind of one, of one of the biggest challenges of the 21st century. How do we create an economy that includes everyone, particularly as technology and globalization uh, race faster and faster into the future? So just thank you for what you do. Jake, it's such a pleasure to have you. So before we get into the work that you're doing now, can you talk about why you are so passionate about education, skills, and, and the future of work? Sure. Um, I think, uh, as Bill Clinton once said, we are all prisoners of biography. And so very much I'm shaped by from whence I come. Uh, so my family is uh, from Nigeria originally. My, my family is from a far village in, in the east of, of the country that most Nigerians themselves will never go to and, and never visit. Uh, my uh, grandparents didn't go past middle school. My parents had Peace Corps volunteers in their classrooms and their lives were changed. And both of them got the opportunity to come and study here in the United States of America at public universities. My dad went to UT in Texas. My mom went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. And very simply, without American higher education and American opportunity, I would not be here. And so when I think about, um, in some ways, what America needs to do more of, it's in some ways what America did for, for my family through education, through economic opportunity. Uh, I'm in a very different place than my grandparents could ever have imagined than my parents could ever have imagined. And the question is, how do we do that more frequently for more people uh, in more places? And that's what I've tried to devote myself to. And when I think about where I can potentially um, yield the most effort, it's in this, this intersection of economic opportunity and skills, which I think 
which I've focused on my entire career, but didn't really have a name until this future of work concept really came about. And frankly, that's been accelerated by uh, COVID and, and, and current crises. And so um, that's why I'm so committed, uh, so committed and passionate about it because of the moments I come. And, I'll, and also because of how much, um, how much we need this to be solved in this time, whether it be here in the US, whether it be around the world, we need a system that efficiently and scalably gets people from where they are to where they economically want to be through the acquisition of skills and by removing barriers from uh, the work that they can do and the work that they want to do. And so uh, that's why I'm just so passionate about it. And that's why I'm, I'm always happy to have this conversation because it's one of the most important that I think that we can have as a country and a world. Chica, as you begin to describe your work, uh, can you take a step back and define the problem for us? Sure. The term future work has come to mean many things to different people. Sure. So having a definition would be very helpful. Sure. And so let me define the problem. Let me define some questions that I think should define how we think about it. And then I think so, some kind of things, some insights that I've at least pulled from very smart people, smarter than me uh, throughout the course of, I think, my career and my work. When we think about the future of work and the problem, uh, we define the problem, we should define the problem in two ways. One that's popularly talked about and one that's less talked about. We, we are, there have been many articles written, just type into Google, robots are taking our jobs. And you will find lots of articles about new technologies that will obviate the need for certain jobs entirely. And that is a real thing. Take, take um, um, automated vehicles, uh, 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 autonomous vehicles, excuse me. If you look at the data, they will be on the roads um, en masse between 2030 and 2040, starting in commercial trucking and public transit. Um, they will add almost a trillion dollars in economic growth to the U.S. economy. But they also, frankly, uh, remove the need for the most commonly held profession by an American man being driving a vehicle. Mo roughly more people drive a vehicle in this country than who serve as school teachers. So just to put it in perspective, that is one half of the problem that we're talking about. There's another half of the problem that we don't talk enough about, which is actually just as big, which is not the jobs that will go away, but the jobs that will change irrevocably due to technology. And Harper, I think you, you and I have talked about this previously. The perfect example of this is the loan officer. So when my parents were younger, when I was probably not even a thought in the world, if you wanted a loan, you went to a bank and you went to go see a man and you brought all your documents, he interviewed you, uh, and he decided whether you got the loan or not because of some factors that were concrete and some that were more uh, subjective. Today, there, today, and there will be in the future, someone who has the job of a loan officer, but that job is very different now. The, 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 the person that makes it, the, the person that makes the choice of whether you, you get, get a loan or not is not the loan officer, that person. It is an algorithm. It is a multivariate uh, regression that actually, when you look at the overall, the overall data, is as accurate in picking, in picking who will make a default or, or not uh, versus a human being. The job of the loan officer now is, frankly, customer acquisition, meaning I need to get people in the door so they want to get a loan from my bank, from my financial uh, institution. And then also what we call in my old world, account management. Once you have the loan, they keep you happy. So you want to come back and do more loans. Those are two very different jobs. And, and now we've seen that transition over my lifetime, but you're seeing a bunch of jobs go through transitions like that in months, in years. And the question is, how are we keeping those folks? Um, how are we helping them keep up with what's happening? And so those are the two things. And so when you put those two categories together, jobs that will go away and jobs will be changed, you're talking about 60% of American jobs uh, per uh, uh, McKinsey data, as well as some others. That is the future of work problem that we are, we are dealing with. 
So when we think about the future of work, I generally ask four questions. Again, I'm not as smart as my colleague, Michelle Williams, uh, 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 Michelle Smith, rather. Uh, so I try and keep it simple. Four questions that I ask myself about the future of work. Number one, what will the, the work of the future be? There's a challenge and a question about whether there will be enough jobs for full employment. Some people say yes, some people say no. I think there are things that you can do from a policy and the, the, the industry lens to, to create some more certainty. But that is the question. What are those jobs and how will they be done differently? What, what, what are those skills of the future? You know, so we'll, we'll hear a lot about AI, machine learning, uh, quantum computing. What's great in some ways about all of those is not just those fields, but also there are a ton of middle skill jobs that are further down the value chain that are family that can create family sustaining wages, but that also require new skills, new competencies that we've never had before. Second question. What are how will the workers of the future have the skills and competencies that they need to do those jobs? That is the workforce development skilling question. And what's really happening now is that we're realizing it's not just about technical skill, which is critical. It's also about these cross-cutting, I like the term human skills, skills that only human beings can do, uh, leadership, communication, coordination, collaboration. These are things that seem soft until you meet a worker who doesn't have them. And, that, and that's when you realize, oh, these are just as critical as, as those technical skills. Thirdly, which is something that we don't talk enough about, how do the work and the worker find each other? What you find is that ideally, if you can do the job, you should get the job. But what we find is there are people who can do a job who, for some reason, either because of, of inefficiency in the market, because of lack of, of information, or frankly, because of bias, because the people who have the work don't realize or don't want to realize that they can do the work, they're separated and you have jobs that stay open and you have people who need jobs, which I would say today should, should be a travesty. And then lastly, what are the systems of supports that we need to help workers throughout that entire journey? getting into the market, staying in the market, upscaling, if they fall out, how do we get them back in? Those are the four big questions that we need to think about. And when we think about future of work, it's how do we look at the jobs that we may lose? And how do we look at the jobs that may change? And so that's how I frame this problem and it organizes a lot of my thinking. And generally, most of the things that fit in this debate fit in one of those categories. I think our challenge is at times we focus on one part of it. And so, for example, we'll focus a lot on gig workers. Very important. Uh, because there, there will be new modes of work, but the, 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 but there's a broader question about, frankly, how do they have health insurance? How do they pay their rent? What 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 level of what level of insecurity is tolerable before you have negative externalities for the rest of the market? That fits really in this support question as well as how do the how do the work and worker find each other? So there are lots of these kind of hot button issues that we need to put in a broader framework to really at attack this problem holistically. Let me say one last thing, Harpreet, and I think it's really important, particularly I think for your listeners who are here in the States. Here in the States right now, we're, we, we are in the midst of three crises. One is COVID, this novel virus that frankly um, is buffeting us as a country. Uh, I think yesterday, two days ago, we had the highest uh, uh, rate of cases ever. Two, you have the associated joblessness crisis, which, you know, there were times we were at 16%, depending on how you look at the data. We're right now a, sh a shade above or under eight, which is still historic. We this is where we were in the worst parts of 2008. Um, and, and sadly, it's even it's progress compared to where we were in April and May. Uh, the third crisis is a, a historic reckoning around racial inequity that we've had for the life of this country. And so when you look at the people who are most at risk in the future of work, the people who hold the jobs that might either change or go away entirely, they are disproportionately poor people. They're disproportionately immigrants. They're disproportionately people of color. And this has not only a political uh, excuse me, not only an economic uh, 
cost and consequences. That's a political and a social cost, which frankly, on the day of the election that we are having right now, um, we are seeing the, uh, the uh, reverberations of that. So if you care not only about a healthy economy, but also a healthy body politic, you have to attack this crisis. And so this, that framing, I hope, is helpful as we think about this conversation. Yes, no, this is uh, very helpful. <clears throat> so talk to us about the Education Design Lab, your role there, and also the Community College Growth Engine Fund that you're leading. Sure. And so the Education Design Lab was founded by uh, our founder and our leader, Kathleen Delasky. Um, storied career that we don't have the time to go through, but going through journalism at ABC News, the Pentagon, where she was spokesperson, a number of tours through the Fortune 500. But what brought her to the, this topic was serving on the board of trustees at George Mason University, which is a majority minority university in Northern Virginia. Uh, and what she saw across higher education was a difficulty creating bridges between higher education and employment, particularly for students who didn't come from means. And so she left that role to say, we need to create, use human-centered design principles, the things that you hear about in Silicon Valley from firms like IDEO and Frog. Let's use those not on consumer products and goods, which is all well and good. Let's use these towards higher education and designing uh, around the learner so that they can move from educationally where they are to economically where they want to be. So the Education Design Lab was founded about seven years ago, and we've worked with over 130 institutions across the country, as well over 70 employers in every part of this country, doing things like working with students who are looking to transfer to a four-year institution from a two-year institution and making that far more seamless, working with single mothers to make sure that they can graduate and, get, and go on to jobs of their, their choosing, working with black and brown students who are at HBCUs and Hispanic-serving institutions so that uh, they can, again, reach their economic destiny and educational future. And so the uh, my role is the head of economic mobility pathways. And the really the impetus around the Community College Growth Engine Fund is how do we use higher education to fuel individual economic mobility and regional economic development? So the Community College Growth Engine Fund comes from these three crises that we're seeing right now, COVID, joblessness, racial inequity and seeing how can we use community colleges to attack that. And so for your listeners who are unfamiliar with community colleges, um, it's important to say a couple things about them. One, there are 1,100 community colleges in, in this country. If you go to any community in this country, pull anyone off the street and ask them what community college is in their area, they, they know the name. They likely know someone who went there. That someone may likely be in their family. So in terms of the footprint of American community colleges, it is wide. Secondly, which most people do not know, Community colleges in the U.S. produce the majority of American undergraduates. So from a scale perspective, if, you, if, if you're trying to deal with the skills and talent challenge, it's hard to overlook a community college just by numbers. Thirdly, when, when we look at equity, the majority of American undergraduates of color are at community colleges. The majority of uh, folks who, like my parents, when they came to this country, they're, they're looking to get their first foothold into this country. They're, they're likely going to a community college to get that first credential, that first certificate, that first leg on the economic ladder. And so for the populations that we are failing with and that we need because they're going to be a bigger part of our population in the future, you can't overlook community colleges. So this is a huge asset that likely we've underutilized, frankly, for my entire lifetime. Initially, when this idea came up from the community, from the uh, from the design lab, uh, we didn't have many takers, to be very frank. And then COVID happened. And in a matter of months, because people, I think, saw all the trends that we've been talking about come to life. You know, we were lucky to be to be able to raise um, over three million dollars from a combination of corporate and philanthropic donors to fuel this work. And so the Community College Growth Engine Fund 
uh, very simply is a, is a six site demonstration project working with six community colleges across this country, CUNY in New York City, Prince George's Community College here in Maryland, right outside of DC, Austin Community College in Austin, Texas, Ivy Tech in Indiana, Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, and Seattle Colleges in, in Seattle to do one thing, to build what we're calling micro pathways, two or more stackable credentials that will lead someone to a job in less than a year. Across these six schools, we there are going to be creating what we're calling 18 micro pathways for 18 different high growth jobs. And the goal is that, the, that, that those institutions will serve over 4,000 uh, new majority learners by the end of uh, 2022. The goal is then after this by 2025 to take those micro pathways across the country and serve over a million learners and get them into work by the end of 2025. That is our goal here. Uh, you know, it, it, for those of you who have been in the startup space or the, or, or in, in, in industry, we are very much looking for a hockey stick. We are very much looking to change the trajectory of the joblessness crisis in this country with this initiative. To put it in perspective, in 2008, when we had the Great Recession, it took us six years to get back to 2007 job levels. I have argued that we do not have that time here. If we take that long, we will do un unbelievable damage to our country. So we have to move faster. And so we said... This community college growth engine fund can't simply be a higher education initiative. This has to be truly about changing the economic trajectory of this situation and making a meaningful dent. And so that's why, again, we are, our goal is thousands to millions. Our first two years, we'll be developing these micro pathways and the partnerships and process that will make them possible. And then doing the distribution to scale those across the country, across state community college systems, corporate partners working in tandem with higher education institutions, and also pulling some policy levers that will, that will change structural incentives that will make this work more and more possible. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Expertify differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Expertify Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expertify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. So, Chika, that, that this is fascinating. Are you thinking about uh, certain skills, uh, you know, that would be more dominant? Sure. And, and also, are you working on the placement side? Because, uh, you know, you, yep. you always have to reskill people, but then you also have to place them in jobs. Absolutely. So this is a, you've hit on the big questions that we are literally kind of working through. And we describe this as an accelerator experience. Anyone who's been to an accelerator experience as a company, you usually walk in and you don't totally know how you're going to solve all the problems, uh, but you're, you are there to try, to try and figure it out with, with, with others who've walked this path. And so absolutely. So if you look at our six institutions, they're all very different from each other, very different regional economies, but a couple of kind of uh, macro industry trends that they're looking at. One is advanced manufacturing. Uh, another is allied health. So think not nurse, not doctor, although but associated, but, but associated fields, and also tech, a tech slash IT. Those are three big trends. But also you see subtrends like construction, for example, in certain places. You do see a trend towards entrepreneurship, folks who want to be sole proprietors. Um, so those are things that we see. But what we're doing now, the process that we are taking them through, is a six-part 
very rigorous process. The first part is we want to make sure that we don't create credentials to nowhere. One thing that we have seen at times in higher education is making credentials for jobs that, for which there is no market demand. So we need to test out in the market one from top line economic data from folks like MC, Burning Glass, Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, as well as others. LinkedIn is, is, is a uh, source that we also look at. What does the market need? One. Two, or 1A, 1A is going directly to employers and asking them what their projections of demand are. If you can put that top line data together with that bottom up data uh, from employers, you begin to have an idea of what demand actually is. You know at least what roles. So we're really getting specific here. For our schools, we're looking at allied health, for example, where we are getting, we're asking to get to the level of phlebotomy tech or farm tech in terms of what they're training for. Because that level of specificity allows the next thing, which is once I know the job I'm training for, I need to go back to the, to the employer and be very specific with them and have them tell me what are the skills and competencies required to do this job. And let me use a really, really funny example that came from my colleague, Don Frazier. We did this exercise once with an HVAC repair company, so your, your AC heating system folk. We asked them, what are the skills you need to be an HVAC repair person? And one of the things he said, which surprised us, was empathy. And we, we pushed him, we said, why empathy? And, and, and he had never thought about it before, but he said, you know, the reason is that when someone calls an HVAC repair company, it's usually, it's not usually just a maintenance call. It's usually my heat went off in the winter, my AC went off in the summer, and I'm in a state of agitation. So I need someone who can go to the door and number one, calm this person down. So one, they pay us, they don't get mad, they don't discontinue service and all that. But secondly, so that they can describe to us what's wrong so I can fix this more efficiently. That, and, and to be honest, we have to pull that out. That's not something that is, I guarantee you, that is in any job description. But we need the, the employers to be that clear with our institutions so that they know what they're designing for. That's step two. Step three, we need to design around the learner. And the, and the thing here is in the U.S., we don't have one type of learner. Um, in community colleges, the average student is in their upper 20s. The, the plurality of students are working parents. Um, they're taking care of other people. And so we need to make sure that we you have a product, a micro pathway that is that can serve this, the 17 year old who's coming out, out of secondary school, but also the 48 year old who may have been laid off from a job and who needs to come part time because, you know, they're supporting a family and all the people who are in between. We need to design around the learner. For those of us who have been, have been, who have been in industry, we would never design a product <laughs> without knowing deeply the preferences of the customer. Here, our first customer is the learner and we have to take the same rigor in terms of uh, designing for them. Next is a test and, and iterate stage. You don't get it right the first time. And in that stage, here's where there needs to be tight partnership between the community college and the employer. We say this is a stage of co-design where we're not just talking quarterly or monthly. We're talking ideally weekly, bi-weekly, where we can see if we got it right. Next, we are working on uh, what we call the on-ramps and off-ramps, which is basically how do students or learners find out about this so that the right people end up in the program? This is, again, a lead generation exercise, but it's got to be precise, particularly for these folks. And what are the off-ramps? The off-ramps meaning, what is the off-ramp from exiting this credential to getting employed? And here's a place where we're, we're going to be getting some deep work with employers. The big issue with a lot of employers is that um, they hire based on, on pedigrees and, and credentials because they're easy and efficient to recognize. I'll use this from my prior company, uh, the advisory board company. We were a multinational health and education technology company. We received 50,000 resumes a year. And so degrees were an easy way to sift through, even though they weren't quite, frankly, a measure of what was uh, 
what was a quality applicant. We did it because it was efficient. Lots of other folks do that. So the question is, how do we help them evaluate talent at scale efficiently? And also, how do we remove, frankly, racial, gender, demographic bias from the process? Not just because it's wrong, but because it keeps you from talent that can do work for you and make you money. And then lastly, which is really, for me, my kind of holy grail, how, how do we begin to create a business model around this? In the U.S., and again, this is different for other countries, you have seen a public disinvestment from public higher education. Um, if you were to look at public four years in the 60s or 70s, two-thirds of their money came from the state, one-third came from private tuition. That is split now, where um, public is actually the minority of funding. Um, so we could hope for a change in public policy where we reinvest, and I think, depending on how today goes, that may happen. Um, but even if it doesn't, the majority of U.S. GDP is in private hands. How do we get employers to, frankly, if community colleges deliver a quality product being talent, they should pay for the privilege the same way they pay a staffing agency, same way they pay LinkedIn, the same way they, 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 they pay all these other folks. If you could do that, you solve a big issue and problem for community colleges, and you incent them to do more of this, which we know our economy needs. So that's the process that I walked through. And thank you for, for, for giving the space. Because I think it's really important. And to be honest, folks have done part of this, but you have to do all of it to be successful. You got it. You have to design for what the market needs. You've got to make sure you know what the skills and companies are, uh, you know, from employers. You have to design around the learner, test and iterate in real time, create the on ramps and off ramps, and then create the business model. If we can do all that, we believe we'll have a thing that we can take across the country and reach that million that you've heard me mention. So let's talk about the micro credentialing that sure. you mentioned. Um, so. What 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 kind of um, I, I guess is this badges or are you trying to provide um, a different modality? Uh, the answer is all of the above. And here we start from the endpoint, which is what will get someone the skills and competencies they uh, they need to get into work. And so for some these may be certificates, for some these may be badges, for some these may be um, industry uh, recognized uh, um, uh, credentials. What we've seen is generally for a micropathway to be successful, it's a combination of things. So we can imagine for an advanced manufacturing pathway, this may be an apprenticeship certification from a union combined with a, a credential for a 21st century skill around communication or around collaboration. It's these bundles. It's in the seams and in the intersections that you find people um, are really marketable. So um, and what we're really looking for is this fusion of um, non-technical skill and technical skill. I'm sure you've seen the you know, T profiles where you have cross-cutting skills that go across careers that we, that we would call 21st century essential or, or soft skills with deep technical expertise. Data science, for example, is a great fusion of this. Data science requires some, some statistics, some coding, but also, frankly, um, a little bit of gut <laughs> in, in, in terms of what the data means. UX designers, again, coding uh, and various levels of programming, but also it's, a, it's about human-centered de uh, design and art. <laughs> So it's those people who are the people who have who are in the catbird seat in our economy. And one of that every credential that we create, no matter the field, has that combination. And so for us, once we know what the skills and competencies are, we look at the universe of credentials and say, okay, what fits here? And if there's a gap, we're going to help community colleges create that. But I think the goal is work from the end. The other thing that, that I'll say, which is really important, is we use the word stackable. And that's a really important word for us in that. Um, in the U.S., at most community colleges, there's a divide between what we call the credit side, meaning folks working toward a two-year 
uh, associate's degree, what we call the non-critic side. That's where most workforce development happens. Um, what we want is ideally to blur that line. What ideally we want is someone comes and says, look, I want to work in advanced manufacturing. I want to do this six-month micro pathway. Um, but if I choose someday to go back, I want the work I did in that six months to count and further me on my, my path to a two- or four-year degree. Um, that's really important, one, because we know that degrees still do matter. They still do have value, and we want to make sure that time is not wasted. And secondly, there's actually an equity concern here. We want to make sure that people have the choice. We have this at times binary discussion about liberal arts versus technical education. It's nonsense. In this economy, you need both. And, 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 and the choice about which way you go or how you merge that needs to be in the hands of the learner, not necessarily the higher ed institution, not necessarily the employer. And so that stackability, meaning this can count towards a degree if the person chooses, is really, really important. And that's what we want to make sure is in the hands of, of, the, of the learner. So that's how, how, how we think about it. And we definitely start from an outcome-based point of view versus the input-based uh, point of view. So um, how do you test for uh, the success of these pathways? Um, again, I'm not as uh, uh, sharp as my colleague, Michelle. Did people get jobs? That is our end. That, that is the metric that we're looking at. I, as I like to say, we're not doing participation trophies here. We, because of the crisis that we're in as a country, we have to get people into work and not just work, but what, what, what we call as a good job. And for us, that's starting at an area median wage that can put them on a path to a living wage, as MIT calculates, within a reasonable uh, 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 amount of time. That's our measure. Now there are back end. Now, as you work backward, there is the are we training for jobs that have market demand? Um, are folks getting interviews? Are folks, um, uh, you know, how, how long are folks staying in, in work? Ideally, at least six months that can prove that there's been longevity here. Are people making it through our pathways? Meaning if they have, of, of who starts, how many finish? Um, and things like that. Those are some of those are the upstream indicators, but I do not let this obscure it at all. Our goal is people in work, because frankly, I don't think we can focus on anything else as a measure of success. In my view, if we don't have 4,000 people in work in two years, we have not been successful. If we don't have a million people in work through these pathways five years from now, we have not been successful. And so that's what we have to look at. And to be honest, I think we need that focus across the entire system. I think at times we can look at other indicators that potentially make us feel good, but that frankly aren't getting at what we need, which is what people want, which is work. Uh, this should be the goal of the entire higher education space, right? That everyone should be thinking like this. I, um, absolutely, and I and 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 I, and I think I said it before, but the debate about degrees versus not degrees, I think, is a really important one. There's a, there's at times a fear in higher education that we want to make everything a trade school, and 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 I, and I think actually the opposite is true. Trade school by itself actually is not successful. The schools that are, are successful again are the ones that frankly teach people to do the things that are timeless things we've been doing since, frankly, the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians and so on and so forth. And also the things that are just in time, the skills that are technical that are that apply to the job. That should be the goal of higher education, four-year fancy institutions, of two-year schools and everyone else that's in between. How do you merge that? And, and I'll be frank, this should be the goal of employers. This should be the goal of labor unions. This should be the goal of chambers. One thing that we say very honestly is that, yes, community colleges need to grow, evolve, and change. All the community colleges that we talk, uh, talk to will say that. What I also say is that community colleges are not the only ones that need to change. Employers need to hire differently. They need to make, they, they, need to, they, they, have, to, they have to sell to the market differently. K-12 school districts need to work with community colleges differently. 
labor unions, chambers need to work differently. Uh, and there are all these other myriad partners that also have to step up their game and do more than they've ever done to do this. I think if we put all this on community colleges, we will fail. And, um, and also it allows the rest of us to kind of shirk responsibility and say, well, the community colleges didn't do what they needed to do. Uh, I think the opposite is true. This is a community-based effort. It's an ecosystem-wide effort. And we were very explicit with all the schools that we work with. Well, one of the uh, deciding factors was, who are you bringing with you to this system? Who are you bringing with you to, to, the, to the party, uh, as you want to say? And for, and for us, we're looking for, we're looking for those employers, those schools, and all these other advocates to be successful here. Well, Chike, you've already touched on this briefly. What are the skills uh, and who are the people who will truly be I'm sorry, uh, let me say that again. What are the skills and who are the people who will truly be indispensable in the economy of the future? Yeah, so let me answer this two ways. I think the first way you've heard me kind of talk about a bit, which is this, you know, they represent that T. They have this combination of these non-technical skills, uh, you know, communication, leadership, curiosity, good questioning, making purposeful connections across different parts of an organization, combined with those deep technical skills. You, you, one without the other does not work. When you put them together, you're indispensable. You are powerful. The other thing that I think about is I, I go back to an old boss of mine, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, um, who led Joint Special Operations uh, in uh, uh, Iraq, and he commanded our U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Um, if you look and, at his philosophy of leadership, he talks about um, capabilities and behaviors of an organization. One of the things he talks about is um, leadership as gardening. And the first time I heard it, I didn't quite know what he meant. What he said was he said, look, historically, our view of leadership has been, if you think about kind of ancient, ancient times, our view of leadership was the, the person who can do what other people can't do is the leader, the bigger one, the stronger one, the person who can kill the saber-toothed tiger or the mammoth, you are the leader. What started happening then was that society got too complicated and no one person could do it all. Therefore, now was who, what person could direct other people more effectively? So think about Napoleon. Napoleon was good because he was just better at commanding armies than other people until obviously uh, Waterloo and you know the Duke of Wellington and all and, and, and all that. But now the world is even too complicated for that. And the leader as gardener now is the person not who can do what other people can't do, not who can direct other people, but who can make other people into leaders. Who can make other people into autonomous agents that don't need them around but can still create value for the, for the organization? Um, and I will argue that leadership defined that way is also the indispensable trait of a worker in the future. The person who can frankly make a team more viable after they left and when they arrived can create more leaders. That is invaluable. And, you know, if, you, if, I, if, if we were to have General Crystal here, he would say that's true in the military. I think it's true in industry. I know it's true in government. I know it's true in the nonprofit space. And frankly, we don't have enough of it right now in, in leadership. And the question is, as we're doing things like workforce development, what are we doing to help people grow that type of leadership inside themselves? Um, and right now, the answer is too little or nothing. Most people stumble upon it. Some people never get, get the chance to, to develop it. But my belief has always been that everyone can be that type of leader. The question is, how are we as, le as leaders ourselves and managers creating the opportunity for people to uh, develop that? In some ways, to use a sports analogy, um, you know, you, it's hard to teach someone that. And of course, you can. There are books to read and all that. But in the end, you have to play and you have to be coached. And that is a critical part of, uh, of, of leadership that I don't think we focus enough on, particularly within industry, as someone who came from, uh, from there. 
So today, uh, the day we are recording this session, the United States is voting on who its next president will be. Yep. What advice would you give for to whoever ends up winning this election and sits in the Oval Office on January 21st of next year? Um, you ask an important question, and I'll try and be <laughs> brief in my, my comments. Let me state, I think, maybe an overriding thing. And then let me state, I think, going back to some of those questions that, that I talked about, um, no one sector of, of society, even the federal government, can solve this future of work problem by themselves. What we need most from the next commander in chief, whether that be this current one continued or a new one, is someone who can bring people to the table and get them to work together in ways that, that they never have, in ways that are uncomfortable and painful across industry, across government, across the nonprofit space. Um, that needs to be the mode of operating to, to attack this challenge. Let me say some things I think that are more tactical. One, what is that work of the future that's got to be work? And so whether it's investment in infrastructure, whether it's investment in R&D, we need to invest in those things across the economy that we know create jobs because we've seen it. Secondly, we have to frankly take the model of the, of, of the community college growth engine fund and use that for how we do workforce development. I'm very blunt about this. I believe that not a dollar of workforce development dollars from the US government should be deployed without a guarantee of a job at the end for whoever goes through that program. Because we are asking people to put their faith in programs that may lead to nowhere. And for someone who frankly is on the economic edge of frankly sustainability and not, that's too big a, a uh, leap of faith for them to take. And so we've got to be that rigorous and we also have to actually invest in, in this. We have never as a country made the, invest, the investment commensurate in, in our people to meet with the speed of the changing economy. We've never done it. We can go all, there, there's actually a slide that I show when I talk about this and, and I'll describe it to you really quickly. It shows pictures of John F. Kennedy, um, Gary Hart, for those of you who remember Gary Hart from the early eighties, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush. And I literally, and, and they're in chronological order. And I, and I say the first time we talked about true mass retraining was back in the early 60s with John F. Kennedy and trade adjustment assistance. Gary Hart, with the day that he announced for president, he announced for president the year that I was born. And he talked about the federal government investing in the retraining of workers in fields like uh, manufacturing and, and putting them in fields like robotics. Bill Clinton talked about the use of community colleges to reskill American workers. George W. Bush talked about the same thing, both in states of the union. Barack Obama talked about the exact uh, uh, same thing. The reason I say all that <laughs> is that um, we've never made that investment the way that we need to. And frankly, when Americans are um, skeptical that we're going to, they have good reason to because of the history that they've seen. So we have to make those investments at the scale and with the rigor that we need. Thirdly, how do we bring these parts of the economy together to get over these barriers that keep the work from the worker? How do we as a federal government incentivize the hiring based on skills versus pedigrees? And lastly, how, how, how do we update the, the, uh, the safety net? And I actually hate the term safety net. The term I usually use is economic trampoline. How do we have a system of support so when someone falls out of the labor market, they're caught and they're bounced back at least in a better, as, as good a place as they, they, they were before? Those are the things that I would have them focus on. And there are a number of very tactical things, which is, for example, in the U.S. Pell Grants, which are USA for higher education, they should be able to be applied towards workforce development, not just degrees, for example, in ways that are rigorous and safe. But that has to be something. Uh, we need, frankly, a financing mechanism so that people don't have to pay out of pocket 
for workforce development training the same way that they can do that for higher education. There's no mechanism uh, like that currently, which stops a lot of people who need it from doing it. So there are a number of tactical things, but those are the big things that I would see. And I, and I would end where I began, which is no one, not even the president of the United States can solve this by themselves. They need to get all the parties together regionally, statewide, locally, as well as nationally to, to attack this problem. And again, the, the particular power of that office um, would make them indispensable uh, in doing that. So I hope the next president, whoever they are, does that and, and takes that small bit of advice from uh, the peanut gallery here. Jacob, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely.